You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, produced by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. Learn something new in every episode as we interview UNT faculty, subject matter experts, and lifelong learners in our community. To learn more about our non-credit courses and events, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. We are speaking today with Kazini Nazir, Clinical Associate Professor at UNT, where he teaches classes in interaction design. In spring 2020, he served as designer in residence for SMU's Master of Arts in Design and Innovation. Prior to joining UNT, Cassini taught interaction design at UT Dallas for 10 years. Welcome, Cassini. Thank you. Excited to be here. It's good to have you here. We're real happy to have you join us. You have a lot of information that I am very excited to learn about. Can you give us an idea of what your area of expertise is and more information about the field of information architecture? Sure. As you mentioned, my area is interaction design. And that, broadly speaking, explores how do we create conversations with a user, ourselves, usually humans, and digital objects. And that can be visual interfaces that have screens, or increasingly we're seeing things that don't have screens, where you, we're using our voice uh, to interact with, with objects. But I want to gently challenge the idea of subject expert, because I think it, it, curiosity demands that, that there's often more information that we don't know. And with expertise, we've accumulated knowledge but there's always more questions to ask. So that undermines the notion of expertise in some ways. And, and curiosity has this habit of unsettling certainties. I think that's, that's its virtue. But you also asked about information architecture. And information architecture, probably not surprising, was actually born out of the field of architecture. And the same guy who gave us TED Talks, his name is Richard Saul Worman. He started this in, I think, 1984. He collided these two words together, and as our digital settings have increased, that meaning has changed with the times, but information architects kind of broadly help us make sense of the world and navigate systems inside the world. And so, as you can see, interaction design, creating conversations with individuals and information architect helping people to navigate systems, they, they go together very, very well. Would this be navigating all of the information, all of the means of information that we have available to us? I mean, we're talking about my cell phone, my computer, uh, Alexa, whatever. Is that what you're talking about? You're talking about all of these forms of communication that technology has brought to us today and being able to make it more compatible to people to communicate? Is that what you're talking about? Absolutely. What, what you're describing, information architecture, was popularized in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s. And we came, it's shorthanded to many people shorthanded by thinking of navigation on a website. 
And that's one of many possibilities. But I love what you're saying, Susan, because it is it is so much more than that. It's when we turn on our Alexa and we navigate that system using a conversation, how do we navigate that? And that's a much more natural way of navigating than holding a mouse in our hand, clicking it, right, and, and navigating. And so uh, what you're describing there is what we call way showing, showing people the way in, in information architecture and you as an individual way find, you find your way through those systems. And if you if we show you the way and you can find your way, well, you can also lose your way too. Uh, and that can be valuable. Sometimes losing your way means that, hey, I came to the grocery store with this list, but wow, something's on sale. I wasn't expecting that. And you're, you're losing your way temporarily, if you will. Not always a good thing, but in this case it is. And all of these, there's a lot of thought behind digital systems. You mentioned the TED Talks. I dearly love the TED Talks. They're wonderful. They're a great way to get new information. And they're all different in such a variety of subjects. And I hear that you gave a TEDx UNT talk. What was your topic? I did. The TEDx UNT talk was an extension of the research that I've been doing. I've actually given so many talks just recently around curiosity. I'm trying to think what was the specific title for that one. But I, I believe it was Curiosity as an Invitation. This is sort of the impetus behind curiosity. I've always been a curious person. I think the farther back we go, we realize, hey, us as well. Many people still hold on to that dearly, that, that curiosity. But the invitation of curiosity, I think is a, an evocative notion of what curiosity is for us. Invitation from whom to what are the natural questions that, that come out of that. So if I am a curious person, and I think a lot of our listeners are, because our listeners are Ollie members, so they're curious. That's why they're in Ollie. They want to learn about many things. What do you mean by an invitation to curiosity? So I'm speaking from the design perspective and designers shape experiences around us. We generally, we tend to think of designers as people who design objects or design apps or things like that. And I, I teach interaction design here at UNT and I, I really encourage students to think of designing memories. And so long after, if we're designing experiences, the residue of that experience is really the memory of the thing. And so I ask students, what is the memory that you want to leave behind? And let's design around that. So that, that notion of designing memories means that we can, we're really shaping emotions. So the idea of inviting curiosity is the difference between me putting up a sign at my house that says, no shoes allowed. <laughs> <laughs> or leaving a pair of shoes outside that says, hey, in my house, we just generally take off our shoes. And, and it invites a experience or an action or interaction rather than demands it. Sometimes you, there are things that require the, not an invitation, but, but other things. But I think in order to make curiosity happen, it's, it's got to be attractive, we have to be interested and it has to be interesting to us as well. And I think an invitation is a, is a, is a wonderful metaphor. I'm, I'm open to hearing others as well, if, if there are others. You struck a chord with me when you talked about curiosity and emotion. I tend to equate curiosity with excitement. 
Mm-hmm. When I'm excited about something, I'm very curious about it. I'm, I'm like, oh, this sounds really interesting. I want to know more about it. When I heard about your class on curiosity, I'm like, oh, I'm curious. I'm curious. What is that? And I wanted to know what, because I'll, I'll tell you, I've had people who are friends of mine, um, very bright, intelligent, just very active people who say, you know, how are you doing? And they say, I'm bored. And I'm like, how can you be bored? There's so much out there. There's so much to be curious about. You mentioned in your presentation for World Information Architecture Day about the fact that that curiosity has a lot of benefits for us. What kind of benefits do you see? Aside from what I'm saying, the obvious is, how can you be bored? (laughs) Yeah, this is a great question. So Curiosity certainly has advantages, and we'll even talk about maybe some disadvantages too, other than it killing the cat. But luckily, the cat <laughs> has eight more lives <laughs> as, as well. But a, a lot of the advantages and the research that I've done is based on the field of psychology. So psychology has told us that curiosity can enhance intelligence. Uh, it increases our perseverance. It propels us to deeper engagement, to superior performance, to more meaningful goals, all things that we we want to have. It it can even bring awareness and a sense of mindfulness to us. And what I'm most interested in with curiosity is the idea of sort of access to new ideas or different ideas. Curiosity is, is powerful, but it can also be dangerous. And when we think about curiosity, Maybe early in our lives, uh, psychologists have actually found that how curious we are as adults naturally has traces and roots in how we were socially adapted as children to curiosity. But maybe as kids, you were told, don't ask too many questions, or that's enough questions, or right, children should be seen and not heard. Like There are all sorts of things here that will sort of dwindle our natural curiosity. And there are traces of this back to St. Augustine. Uh, For him, it was a vice to be avoided. But I love giving this example that the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, in one of the most profound encounters in the Old Testament, he invited curiosity in Moses through this bush that was burning but not consumed. And it drew Moses in. And Moses says to himself, I will turn aside, uh, right, I was doing something else, but I'm going to turn aside and see this great sight. Why is this bush burning and not burnt? And and this is the information-seeking behavior that's in curiosity. But why I mention that is that burning but not consumed is a great metaphor for curiosity. Coincidentally, it's what happens inside combustion engines, right? They they burn, but they're not consumed. And And I think very much like an engine, curiosity can afford us travel on long distances, and it itself is an engine of discovery. Are there things that people need to be aware of to focus their curiosity? My difficulty is there is so much out there that I am interested, and it's so easy to have access to a lot of information at great depth. So should we focus our curiosity or just let it run rampant? Yeah, there's ways to do that. This is where my research is starting. As designers, we are trying to invite curiosity through the digital and physical objects or systems that we create. But to your point of how can we be curious ourselves? 
One of the things that I've started doing, and your, your podcast listeners aren't going to see it, but I'm, I'm holding up for you right now a journal, which is my curiosity journal. And inside this journal, it's a small pocket-sized journal. I'm placing it in my pocket, my shirt pocket right now. It's a book filled only with questions. And what I'm trying to do here inside this curiosity journal is to register the importance of questions. And maybe just to, just to add to this, there's a really important question that we should ask more frequently. It includes the word else. What else? How else? Who else? Why else? And, and that's a powerful phrase for curiosity, because if we ask it multiple times, we end up generating multiple ideas. I'll, I'll give you a classic example. If I say the word table, what comes to mind, Susan? A table like my kitchen table. Kitchen table. So many people will say the word chair. Oh, um, no. <laughs> right. And, and there's no wrong answer here by, by any means, but exactly what you're thinking, right? Table in, in terms of some physical object, but it could be food table. It could be periodic table, right? And, and so asking the word what else really is this generative notion that says, wow, there's multiple ways that I can look at this. And it is extremely, extremely powerful. Now, you mentioned being guarded against a firm notion when we're finding information about a topic. What is that and why should we defend against it? And how do we defend against it? Absolutely. So if you were to spell out the word information in Scrabble tiles, uh, and a, this is for our listeners, right? If, if you were to do that, you can make out the three words, a firm notion. And what it does, I, I, I love that I discovered this, right? My curiosity sort of led me to say, what are, what are things built into in the word information? And curiosity actually upsets the idea that, that we have of firm notions. And this is actually really important to our brains as we age. And, and it, it goes to the idea, I'm sure your listeners have heard the term or are familiar with the idea of neuroplasticity. That's the ability for our brains to change and reorganize information and make new connections. We used to think that this happened actually only during our childhood. And so if you think of our brains Poor metaphor, but I'll, I'll give you a better one here in a moment. Think of our brains as cement. And during our childhood, our brain is, is like cement in its liquid form. And you can add things to it. You can mold it and shape it at that time. But it's very important, we thought, that you do it during childhood. And so by the time you reach adulthood, the cement has dried. And it turns out this metaphor, our brain is like cement, is absolutely wrong. The better metaphor is that our brain is like Play-Doh. It's quite pliable when you first get it, you take it out of its plastic container. And over time, our brains still re retain that ability to be molded, but less and less so. Or maybe more correctly, it takes increasing effort to mold it differently. And I think that increasing effort is what actually is the reason for us to avoid it and, and sort of to stay with our firm notions. It can be exhausting. What took 10 minutes a decade ago might now take 20 or 30. But there are some powerful things that you can do to sort of add water to the Play-Doh. I'm sure we've, we've probably done that or seen our children or, or grandchildren do that. One thing that is a practice of many people who, who engage in curiosity is shorter long-term meditation. And this can include moments of silence. For some, this is yoga. For others, this is prayer. There's many 
meditation takes many different forms, but it, it actually physically changes our brain. And there's a very famous researcher, his name's Richard Davidson at uh, Wisconsin, who's done some amazing work with the Dalai Lama on this. And it was very controversial at the time. It was in the early 2000s. Some felt he got too close to his research subject, the Dalai Lama. Other people had political disagreements about the Dalai Lama and his position on Tibet. But he, he's the person who helped to popularize this notion of neuroplasticity and looking at how the brains of those who meditate change and is able to be reshaped. There's another way to do this as well. Learning a language at any age not only helps us restructure our brain, but it increases the capacity for plasticity. In English, we have a very specific way that we use sentences, subject, verb, direct, indirect object, et cetera, et cetera. And when you learn new languages, you start to realize that you can start with the indirect object and end with the subject, which is inverse to sort of the ways that we do it in English. And it, it really, what it does is it, again, if you're thinking of Plato, it, it sort of massages it in, in ways that allows us to, to, to be more open to new ideas. And so those are two very simple ways, but I'll just add a, a quick third one. It can be as simple as when you drive home, take a completely different route. And that forces us to look anew to things that are around us. And that's a very simple way that we can be invite curiosity in our daily lives. Yeah, I think I've even heard that it's good for you to brush your teeth with your other hand. Yes. There's something yes. different, <laughs> something different. I am very excited by what science is discovering now with neuroplasticity because I was a speech pathologist and when I went through school, as you say, it was, uh, you know, no, once you get older, that's kind of it. You know, it's a, it's a downhill slide and that's not it. And we have as much responsibility in keeping our minds physically fit as we do yes. our bodies and through diet and through learning and through things like this and what you're talking about. And I find it all very exciting, especially given the opportunities that we have now. Years ago, I don't think people had an opportunity to do these kinds of things that we do. Now, I'm interested in the fact that your background, your degree was an MFA, right? In arts from UT Dallas, if I remember correctly. That's correct. Yeah. Tell me how you take your art and you put that into designing what you're talking about in terms of information and helping people to follow along with enabling their curiosity. Wow. Thank you for that question. That's uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to fill time by thanking you, which, which is a great question because I, I, I haven't thought about this very much. Uh, the MFA that I did was actually a culmination of many things. I was an English major as an undergrad. I got into art school. I didn't end up going, but I was an English major. And my father encouraged me to balance the abstract with something concrete. I ended up double majoring in economics as well. But along the way, I, I began, I was curious, and I began reading and becoming entranced with the, the Greeks, Greek literature, Greek history, et cetera. And so I ended up asking a professor who had taught Greek in the past whether or not he would be interested in doing that again. This is as an undergrad. He challenged me. He said, if you can get 
the minimum number of people, of course, we can do that. I did. And by the end of that semester, I was, I think it was just three of us <laughs> left in the class. And I ended up continuing on and doing what's called tutorial style sessions with him one-on-one -on -one, where we were reading in, in the original Greek. And I started a degree in classics, which is Greek and Latin at UT Austin. There's uh, no surprise to anybody, but there's not much of a, of a market for that. Nobody's hiring for, for folks who can read Greek and Latin. Um, JK Rowling has done very well, but <laughs> she's an exception. And, and when I stepped into my MFA, it was bringing a variety of experiences together. And there's this wonderful quote that I love from the poem Ulysses by Alfred Lord Tennyson. And it is, it's, it's the line that says, I'm a part of all that I've met, meaning Beautiful. that I'm, I'm the sum of my experiences. Yeah. I'm who I am is shaped and molded just like the Plato we were talking about by all of the experiences we've had. And, and, and I think that was helpful to me in the field of design because increasingly we're not just designing objects, but we're designing experiences. And one of the things that new designers need is experience. We need to have experienced the world, people unlike ourselves, people different from us. And one of the things that my students, so I'm, I'm also a program director out here at Frisco, and my students in the undergraduate program are, are working with a car company here in North Texas, I'm not supposed to say the name, on a product concept that is meant to lengthen the driving age for our elders. We're, we're aging longer. Yeah. And, and we're aging longer, but our health may not also be doing as well. And what I love about this is that it's taking young 20-something, very young 20-somethings, and pairing them with, with seniors, with, with elderly, and they get to understand their experience is different and maybe impart some wisdom along the way too. Well, I hope that they include some older drivers as they work on that just to test it and see, because you do, you do think differently. In fact, that kind of goes right into what my next question was going to be, was if you see anything in the future for this area, for this developing technology or design. Yeah, I see both good and bad in the future, right? There's technology... On the one hand, it can help us as it moves forward. It, it can harm us as, as well. And that's, that's one of the challenges that we actually face with digital technology today. And, and I, I talk about it in my World Information Day talk that it's, it's I, I contrast the health pandemic that, that we're in right now with digital pandemics. The original iPhone was launched in 2007. It wasn't the original smartphone necessarily, but it, it popularized this and you know, you might even be listening to this podcast on a <laughs> on on a on an iPhone today, but if you take a post-it note and you fold it about two thirds of the way over, that was the size of the screen at the time. That was again not the entire iPhone, but just the screen. Screen sizes have more than doubled. Right, the 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 screens that we have today are very large, and the idea that that I'm trying to contrast there is that digital systems have increased in size. And it might surprise listeners to know that unlike the American Medical Association, which requires a code of ethics, designers and developers of digital systems are not bound by any code of ethics. There's no overriding impetus to do no harm. 
right? Like, like the American Medical Association. Maybe more importantly, there are, there are no or very little repercussions on the creators of those systems when harm is done. If you contrast this with architects, right? Those who erect physical structures in the physical world, they actually have a canon of obligations that they have to sign on that demonstrate an, obligations to an increasingly larger scope, starting from the client to general obligations, to the public at large, their profession, et cetera, et cetera. And again, digital designers, we don't, we don't have any such thing that we adhere to. There's been a lot of debate in the design community about this. And, you know, I'll end with maybe a question that when an architect fails, a building falls, right? At its worst, that's what, that's what happens. But the impacts limited by location, vicinity, and proximity to that building. But what falls when digital designers fail in their obligations? That's, that's one of the challenges that we face as, as we move further and further into, we're still in the digital stone age, <laughs> but that's one of the challenges that we face. That's a very interesting topic and would be a wonderful podcast all on its own with the new cautions and sense of moral obligations and all the other things that come in line with the digital age. It certainly has crossed a boundary and we have not yet been able to look at it and figure out what is the best way for us to keep it healthy and keep yes. it beneficial for all people. So that's a very, very good point. Is there anything else, Cassini, that you'd like to mention that I have not asked you about? Yeah, I've been married now 16 years and I think... Curiosity is something that it, it, there's a social component to it. And as I've said earlier, it's powerful. We talked about reshaping the brain, but curiosity can also reshape our relationships. In, in many cases, depending on listeners' living situation, if you're living with a significant other, a spouse, a friend, you know, what have you, what drew you together was maybe your curiosity, if you're like me. I remember seeing my wife many, many years ago, and asking the simple question of who's that? And wanting to know more about this person. And like I said, curiosity, it's this engine. It propelled me to learn more about the other person. And it's exciting. It's fun. We make meaning together. We make memories together. But uh, there's this entropy that kind of takes over in relationships. Um, my wife and I, our curiosities have changed about each other. We generally know how the other person's going to react to certain things. And we fill in the blanks. <laughs> rather, right, maybe your listeners can identify this, that rather than having conversations, you, you get to the end of it. <laughs> and, and, you know, I was talking with her and I realized there's still so much more to know. And maybe as, as parting words to, to listeners that... What drew us together, again, if you're like me, was that curiosity of generally asking, right, what can I know about you? You're so interesting to me. I want to learn more about you. And, and maybe going back to that and genuinely asking our spouses, our significant others, our children, our grandchildren, our friends, hey, what else is there? What, is, what else is there that I can learn about you? There's always more to uncover. And who knows, you might learn something about them and yourself. That is so true. Talk about firm notions. Oh my goodness, do we tend to have them about people, especially those that we 
our nearest and dearest to us. We think we know them oh so well, and then lo and behold, aren't we surprised? Many times it'll be like, oh my goodness, I never knew that or how wonderful about that person. So I guess uh, the, the best thing is to follow your advice about the power of the word else. What else? Who else? How much else is there to this person <laughs> that I think I know so well after 30, 40, 50, 60 years, whatever the case may be? Well, I cannot thank you enough for joining us. This has been very interesting. Thank you, Susan. And thank you for the questions. I, I love questions. Well, you answer <laughs> them very well. So thank you. And uh, we, we look forward to many more of your classes in the future. Thank you very much. Absolutely. To be continued, I always say. There we go. <laughs> this has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Cassini Nazir. Thanks for listening. The Ali at UNT podcast is recorded and edited by Susan Supak and produced by me, Jordan Williams. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our previous interviews and subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. To receive email notifications about each new episode, join our email list at olli.unt.edu slash podcast. 